Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Fleenor, and I'm super pumped because today I'm here with a very special guest host, my dear friend, Maria Dong. Hi, Maria. How you doing? I'm doing awesome and because I'm super pumped to announce our very special awesome guest, Wendy N. Wagner, editor-in-chief of Nightmare Magazine, author of The Secret Skin, The Deer Kings, and you heard her here first, the upcoming The Creek Girl from Tor Night Fire. Welcome, Wendy. Yay! I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) Yay! Yeah, you know, listeners, we thought we were going to be recording this interview a week earlier than we did, and it turns out it's all for the best because literally today, the day we're doing the interview, Wendy just announced the new upcoming novel, The Creek Girl, which is like, that feels very auspicious. Yeah, also, given the kind of stuff that Wendy writes... Um, I'm kind of wondering if you like sent that snowstorm to me on purpose and uh, <laughs> have a chat about that later. So <laughs> I swear it wasn't my fault. <laughs> I have my suspicions. I don't think the weather gods are tapped into my work yet. Yet. yet I don't know. The I might be the word. dear saint. <laughs> <laughs> dear saint just, uh, you know, migrated to Michigan. No big deal. I mean, Oregon and Michigan are a lot alike, yeah. right? Yeah. I kept forgetting the book was set in Oregon, even though, like, I don't know any of the landmarks. I I was like, (laughs) this is just a thing I should know, but don't. And I'd be like, "Mm, it's a different state, though. It's a different state. (laughs) Same vibe. Same vibe. (laughs) Well, let's start with talking a little bit about your editorial work. Um, You are the editor-in-chief at Nightmare Magazine. Um, How how long have you been? Is that three years, four years now? Uh, I started as editor-in-chief there in February 2021, so it's been two two years years and a month. Oh, man. Time Um, is not real anymore, y'all. Like, with the pandemic, I was like, was that 1943? Does that when it happened? Like, I have no idea. (laughs) But I've been uh, with Nightmare and its sister magazine, Lightspeed, um, since 2014. So it feels like like a whole lifetime, basically. Oh, my gosh. You're pulling up on 10 years. Yeah, it's nine years uh, right now. And uh, hopefully, hopefully make it to 10 years. (laughs) I think that's amazing. And you can definitely, I think, um, this is already a tangent. I'm so sorry, everybody. Like, welcome to how I am. Um, But I think that, like, as someone who, you know, obviously reads a lot of short fiction fantasy magazines um, and, and science fiction magazines, you can really feel kind of like the editor's taste. And I just, I can't imagine Nightmare without your influence at this point. Like, it's just... Um, it, and it's it's a wonderful magazine, right? Like, it's one of those ones that's consistently very, very good. So um, I guess, thank you for doing that. <laughs> ah, Maria, thank you. It's so nice to hear. Thank you for buying my story. <laughs> <laughs> it was so awesome. How could I resist it? You know, I was reading, I, I think it's the, oh, it was an interview with a, the site called Gwendolyn Kisty. And in that interview, I, I sort of wrote down a quote because it really stood out to me. 
Um, it's a little bit, I'm, I'm paraphrasing like a small amount, but I think you'll allow me the license. So in it, you say, <laughs> I approach the work with complete respect and trying to see what the writer most wanted. My job as an editor is to bring that out. And I, I think that so, so often, and you talk about, you go on to talk about this in, in this interview as well. So often I think editors are seen as gatekeepers and absolutely that's a, a part of the role of editors, but we're also there. I mean, none of us are there to get rich. <laughs> and so like, there's a real love, right? For I like, I'm laughing, but crying. Like. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, this is not to make money or survive. Um, you know, no, there's, there's, there's an ability to survive with, you know, these patchwork creative careers. Uh, but you know, I, I really, that, that, that spoke to me as an editor, because I think so often, I'm trying to talk to, you know, frequently uh, people who are underrepresented in in our fields, you know, queer people, trans people, people who are queer and trans and black and brown and disabled and the list goes on forever. It And, and so there's a real sensitivity of like, oh, you're trying to change my work. And so I really even start each time I work with a an author and I say like, hey, I'm not here to change your work. I I like it. That's why I've selected it. But I'm here to make sure it does what you want it to do as well as it possibly can, so your readers will finish it. You know, that's always my goal. It's like, I just want your readers to finish the story. And then hopefully they'll love it. But we know, you know, it's a time in life where there's a where sh- there's a shortage of attention span. And so how do we grapple with that? So I, you know, besides just being like, I'm on the same page as you, Wendy, aren't I fantastic hair flip? I also wanted to just invite you to sort of talk a little bit more about that because I think this interview is a couple years old. Like, has that changed for you as you've stepped into the editor-in-chief role? And if not, like, have you grown that or, or what does that look like today? Um, gosh, well, first of all, I just, I, I think that is, what you say to people that you edit is like such a good thing to tell them. And I think so many people feel really, um, anxious about working with an editor. And I just always want to put like my writers at ease at that's like a huge part of what I want to do with this gig is just have writers feeling good about themselves, feeling good about their stories, just knowing that they're going out in the world with like the crumbs wiped off their face and like their shirt (laughs) tucked in the way they want it to be tucked in, you know? I love that. And I think you do a very good job of that as someone who has actually been edited by you. I just want to put that out there. I was like, oh, that is definitely something I'm glad that somebody pointed out to me and I appreciate it. Um, But you definitely have a very light and very nuanced touch. So um, I was really appreciative of that. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Thanks, Maria. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just, I have always kind of set out and I've I've kept it in, in my forefront of my mind, even, you know, through the experiences of like becoming the leader at Nightmare. Um, Just that, for me, the work is really centered on writers and their experiences. And that's the biggest thing. I mean, obviously, I want readers to have a great experience and I want everybody to love and find great stuff from Nightmare. But I don't know. I've been published in a lot of different places and many of my experiences have been super good. Um, Sometimes I haven't been edited at all. Like, I'll sell a story to an anthology here and there it's happened and it's like all of a sudden you get like copy edits and you're like wow 
you didn't want to like talk to me at all about like my language choices or structure of anything. That's a surprise. I don't think I'm that great of a writer, you know? Um, And that always makes me feel really nervous. Or then sometimes you'll get like edits that you're like, wow, you don't really get what that sentence is trying to do because Mm. otherwise you would not have suggested making that change. And I think because I'm a writer first and foremost, I really care about that. And I want the writers to have this good experience. Um, A part of me wishes that like, instead of running a magazine based on like, you know, slush piles and things like that, I wish I could just like go hang out someplace and like chat with writers and like meet people and talk to them about their stories and be like, oh, that sounds fun. Let's work together on that. Because I just, I really like being able to collaborate and feel like I'm working with people that are excited to work with me and things like that. I just wish I could put more of like a human spin on like the whole process as opposed to like right now at Nightmare, like pretty much every mag, well, maybe not every magazine, but a large number of magazines, right? That you've got like a website where you upload your story. It has to be in a certain format and you can only do it like when they're open to submissions and you have to write a cover letter that is exactly this revealing, but no more. And it's, uh, I, it's so gross. <laughs> You're giving me like, um, it's, it's trauma, like flashbacks. Like I'm like, oh yeah. Cause I haven't done that in a little bit, but, um, Wow. Yep. That's, that's such an interesting model. It sounds like a really, if you ever do get that started, let me know. I'm going to like drop by. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've been kind of thinking about like, how could I even make that work? Like maybe I could use Zoom or something. I don't know. Like have a few convivial issues, right? These are the, these are the issues born out of just like hanging out. It could work. We'll see. (laughs) It sounds very, it sounds fun. I'm like really excited by anything kind of different in terms of how um, people are creating stories. So call me, give me it like, seriously, give me a, give me a message. <laughs> and Essie, give Essie a message. That would be great. Yeah. I have no idea if I answered your question. Cause I got so sidetracked by like in my head, I'm like sitting on a really comfortable couch or all these. Oh, snacks. I have no idea if you answered the question. I was too engrossed in the answer. So, uh, you know, listeners question? will have to be the judge, you know? <laughs> Good luck, listeners. We wish you the best. We hope you enjoy this. May the odds be ever in your favor. There'll be a test at the end. Uh. <laughs> yes, you you will be scored. You know, another thing you said in, in that uh, interview, I think the person was asking you, you know, like, oh, okay, so like as um, an acquiring editor, like what are you looking for in in your your short stories? And I was really happy because you you, so often like I've answered that question a million times, right? And it's like, and then it, suddenly I'm like, you know, rambling about Russia and everyone's like, what? And I'm like, I don't know. I got, I got like really excited about like a corner of my head. I don't even know. But you were so succinct. succinct. You were like, it's all about character. And it's all about your character. I think you said characters is actually what you said. And I would, I'm just like, please go on. Like, I would love to hear you sort of extrapolate from there. When, when you say that, you know, let's pretend I'm in the shoes of, I guess I am. But, you know, someone who's submitting, like, what it, what does that mean to you? when the rubber meets the road in terms of a story? What does it mean when it's it's all about characters? Okay, well, to get through this, I'm going to kind of take a side tangent through a ramble, through something I was talking about on my Patreon the other day. Um, and that is like right now, people in genre fiction are really freaking out about um, the way that 
some writers are trying to game the system by having like AI chatbots write their short stories. And, you know, like Clark's World magazine was like super overwhelmed by all these like artificially created submissions that obviously didn't meet their needs, um, but took a lot of time to process. And like, I know a lot of writers are really like super afraid, like, oh my gosh, now we have to compete with artificial intelligence. And we've all seen the sci-fi movies. This is going to go horribly awry. Um, So what I was talking about on Patreon was about how I believe like right now we are operating at a time. I mean, we've been working toward this like for decades, but we live in a time where it's a lot of people are tremendously isolated, right? Like we're, even if you have a day job that takes you out of the house, it doesn't mean that you have like authentic interactions with people like all day long. In fact, maybe it's even worse than if you work from home. I don't know. Um, But like we've created, especially in the United States, um, you've created this culture where you get in your car, you drive places, you don't experience much nature, you don't talk to your neighbors, you order your food by delivery and you don't have to talk to that person. Um, And it's, it's like this lonely time when we're not like connecting with people very much. And so I think we're extremely hungry for a real sense of human relationships. Um, And, you know, like I love listening to podcasts and watching YouTube because I I start to feel like those people, like the hosts are like, oh, it's my friends. Like, you know, they've never interacted with me, but it just feels like so genuine listening to people talking and like, interacting with each other. And and I'm always super hungry for that. And I feel like our fiction um, has to be that way. It has to be truly human for us to give up the time that we could be spending, um, you know, watching awesome YouTubers or listening to cool podcasts um, or, you know, meeting our life needs or watching TV or playing video games. Like, our fiction has to give us something really special and more human than we can get from those other sources of entertainment and time-filling. And, I mean, I think there's a lot of literature out there that is great and fun and enjoyable, but it can be like kind of formulaic. And at the end of the day, you know, maybe a robot could have written it. And sometimes that's probably totally fine. But I think for for me and readers like me, I want to be so immersed in a human point of view, in human feelings, in human thoughts and just humanity when I read a piece of fiction. Um, That's what I'm going there for and that's what I want. So when someone's writing a story and they look at it and they say, oh, hot diggity dog, I I think this is a nightmare story. It's going to be a story that's, um, you know, it's written with a very distinct point of view, with a distinct voice. It's packed with 
sensory details that are really unique to that character. It's full of insights about the world that's unique to the character. Um, If I was going to boil down writing advice, like if I was going to sit down with somebody and look at their story, I'd be like, well, look at the word you chose here. Like, is that a word that reflects like your character's experiences or is it kind of a generic world? Like, you know, if, if you have a character who can't see the color blue, then, you know, you, you're going to have to make choices about the um, analogies that you're using in your work. Uh, and, and you're not going to want them to include words that have connotations of blueness or that reference blue things, right? Like, because that character probably doesn't care much about those things. So that would be like the extremely like crunchy technical way of talking about this, I think. But yeah, I I think that's what I'm looking for is truly human work by real humans trying to do human things. Yes. I think it's so fascinating what you just said, because when you were saying this, I was really seeing the Deer Kings, like in terms of character, um, the things that you're looking for. Like when I look, gosh, I'm so excited. I can't even make words. Um, There's a moment in the Deer Kings, for example, when you talk about like a a Bonnie Bell chapstick, the Dr. Pepper chapstick specifically. And it was so evocative that I almost like time traveled 15 years into the past. Like I could taste it. I had that chapstick. I could taste it on my lips. And there's so many moments in that book, uh, your book. I I think we already mentioned that, but maybe if you're a reader and and you didn't catch that, The Dear Kings is a book by Wendy and Wagner. There's so many (laughs) moments in that book where I felt utterly transported to a very specific place with a very specific feeling that was like deeply connected to my youth, my childhood, like a sense of nostalgia. There's a moment where you're just, you're talking about making a sandwich and like the very particular way that this character named David makes a sandwich. And it was so vivid that I immediately got up and like made that exact sandwich. Like I was like, well, I have to have a sandwich now. So I I think that like, it's so fascinating because you are actually, I would say, when I think about all the people that I read, like one of the people that really draws these amazing characters. So if, maybe if people are like, how do I write a good character? Like, can I recommend to you the work of Wendy and Wendy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I gotta say, um, out of, there's a lot of fun and crazy stuff that happens in uh, The Dare Kings, but probably my favorite thing to write was that sandwich scene. Like, <laughs> oh I God. loved that moment. Oh my God. Well, now you know that I made the same sandwich and I ate I it. I'm so happy. <laughs> you know, I was going to, and I think this connects to what, what both of you have said, is it's something frequently, I, I work as, you know, I'm an editor with Decoded Pride, which is our uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror publication that we've done the last three years during Pride. We're taking this year off, a little hiatus year, at least this year. We'll see what the future holds. Uh, but also I'm an, an independent editor, so I work with clients. And so something that I come back to a lot is something you said, Wendy, which is we can be kind of careless with our metaphors or there's there's an opportunity to be more thoughtful with our metaphors with characters. I'll put it that way, where we can really yeah. think about how does this lend the richness of this person. And I think the, the, the example of Blue is really good. And the other one I thought of is uh, I worked with a client who was writing a novel about a, a middle grade novel about a character who could uh, finds out he's basically has superpowers related to the ocean. And he, he's like really unexpected. And he's like, Oh, look, I'm, I'm connected to the ocean. I'm part of the ocean. And, but then the, the author used the term like, Oh, the news spread like wildfire. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. That's totally a cliche we use. 
but what about an ocean character? Like, well, how would they see it? And we ended up settling on something about like it, it spread faster than an algae, bl- algae bloom, you know, something else, oh, you know, cool. right? It still oh, gets that, that color that was there. So I thought that was fun. But yeah, like that's, I think that's one way because writing is so nebulous, right? Like so often we're just like, I don't know. I'm just going to do another draft and really fucking hope it works this time. I don't know. You know? I hate like, you so much right now. Click, click, you click, know click, that click. I'm struggling. I hate <laughs> you so much right now. It's just, that's real, right? Like you're like, I hope there's something here at the end. We'll see. But I think those moments where you really can take a step back and ask yourself, where can I make this character more rich? The metaphors, they're actually kind of technical. They're they're pretty easy to change and and they can do so much for you. And that's how I felt both in the Dear Kings and in the Secret Skin. You know, there's so oh much God, about the so much. Yeah, there's so much about the fecundity of the garden. And there's so much about the 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 way things work on this sort of like uh cliff front mansion, you know, that that all seep into how the characters is the narrator and main character are telling us the story. And so I don't know. I really love that advice. I think that's some of the like the most actionable advice you can give without looking at someone's actual story, you know? Like it's easy to give <laughs> advice when I've got something in front of me, but generally it's like, yeah, go back over your metaphors, boom, new draft, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. So, Wendy, I have a question, actually, um, before we kind of get into the meat of your of your work. I would love to know more about kind of the beginning, um, you know, where you started with writing, kind of how you got into editing. Um, I think you have a really probably, I'm guessing, very interesting path. Um, and I w- I'm very personally curious. I just would love to hear more. Um, oh, cool. <laughs> I was one of those kids that always wanted to be a writer. Well, from about age seven, I can actually specifically remember the book that made me know that that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It was um, Tamora Pierce's uh, Atlanta, the first book in her Song of the Lioness series. And I checked it out from the library and it was the first book I ever read that had multiple point of view characters. And like at first I was so confused and it, because, you know, I'm like seven and (laughs) I, it like blew my mind that you were allowed to do that. And it just suddenly like really occurred to me that someone, someone chose to do that. Like somebody had this story idea and then they like made decisions about it and that's like what got turned into a book and I thought that was like the most amazingly cool thing that could ever happen and from that point onward I was like I'm going to be a writer when I grow up um, and then I spent a lot of time as a kid, like writing basically knockoff fan fiction, because I think that's how a lot of us start. Ooh, like, interesting. Any particular? Uh... Oh, yeah. Yeah. This book, like my first novel attempt was about these mice who were like trying to escape from a bad situation and were loop, like really super smart. Um but then also they knew how to use swords. So it was like the secret of Nim meets Red like, Wall. I don't know, the princess bride. This is before Redwall. Because <laughs> I'm a little oh older my goodness. than you, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. So like that's the kind of stuff like that I was writing when I was like eight or nine, you know. And I feel really lucky because 
Um, as a kid, I was put into like talented and gift. I was like marked as a talented and gifted kid, which I'm not sure that I actually was, but I was um, <laughs> one of only one or two kids in my class all the time because I went to a one a two room schoolhouse in the middle of nowhere. Um, so there were no other kids to compare me to. So I I guess I seemed pretty smart that way. <laughs> but anyway, so. With tag money, my school was able to send me to some writing classes uh, by an organization, a local community organization at the time offered like some really cool classes for kids to take. So I took like a creative writing class in eighth grade that was just like really, um, really gave me a lot of great skills at an early age, I think, which was terrific and definitely really helped set me up for a good, a lot of great, you know, success in high school and college. Um, but when I had always wanted to write science fiction or horror or fantasy, I was always a genre kid until I went to college where, um, you know, my college in the 90s was very like, ew, only these four or five approved horror and science fiction novels are acceptable books. All other books in those genres are trash and you shouldn't want to write them. I feel like it's kind of still the like outlook of many colleges now. <laughs> I think you might be right. It was definitely that way when I went to college in like the early aughts. <laughs> like I, I, I actually talked, I've talked about it on the pod before because I think it, you know, I was like a I think we've got some things in common, the three of us. Like, I was a poor kid from a small town who got into college. And then yep. I was like, I don't even, clearly, I don't understand the basics of being alive. Like, I don't know what anyone's talking like, about. Yeah. So they're like, this it's is bad. Dumb. And I'm like, great point. It is bad, isn't it? Write that down in my notebook. I'm like, I concur. Don't ever read science fiction or horror. You know, like, so I, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> oh, yay. Great. Yeah. So, like, I didn't like, I took like one creative writing class in college, um, but I was like, you know, I'm going to go in the world. I'm going to get a real job because nobody can make money as a writer. Um, real job. And of course, I obviously supported this plan really well because I majored in philosophy and music, which are obviously <laughs> huge money-making fields. I majored in religion. I'm I'm like, Wendy, whoa, you're like, you're, it's a mirror. It's a mirror. I majored oh my in God. Spanish. I don't think any of us here is. <laughs> I forgot that you majored in Spanish. That's amazing. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, golly, I love that. Um, yeah. So anyway, I got done with college and I was like, oh, I still want to be a writer, but I have to write the great American novel. And that meant I didn't write anything for years and years. Um, and then, you know, I accidentally had a kid and when I just didn't want to feel like a total loser anymore, like mm. I felt like I wanted to lead the kind of life that said you should do what you want to do and you should mm -hmm. work toward your dreams and you should, I wanted to be a good role model for my daughter. And so while she, uh, so I, uh, I was living at home with my mom on food stamps and uh, I had my student loans on deferment. And while my daughter would take her naps, I started writing my first novel and it was not a good novel, let me tell you. But it was, a, I mean, my first novel that I ever finished. And that was like, 
I wrote this fantasy novel and, uh, you know, a lot of things happened. Like my computer died and the book got eaten and, uh, you know, all kinds of moves and life changes and things like that. And in about 2007 or so, I finished that book and I wrote a bunch of other ones in like NaNoWriMo and I started feeling like, I feel like I need to become a better writer and I need to do it faster than writing novels is letting me because it just takes so long to write a novel even when you do them during NaNoWriMo, right? (laughs) They're like so long. Marie and I are both in the middle of like novels and all we do is talk about like (laughs) what a joke it is. We're like, what a scam. Like, what am I doing? (laughs) Oh my God, it's so true. It's so true. It is like such a scam. But yeah, so in uh, like 2008, I started doing two things, and that is writing science, uh, writing short stories, and I started using Twitter. And this was back when Twitter was cool and rad and not owned by idiots. Uh, well, or maybe just owned by a different kind of Just idiots. like ruined it overnight, like so fast. I went from it's like so my true. favorite platform to like the worst experience in like, I don't know, 20 minutes. Like it was like... It's true. It's so true. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But it was great because on Twitter, I was able to connect with all these other people who are kind of in the same boat that I was in, in the writing like field, like people that were really serious about, I'm going to write short stories and... Um, and they were full of information, like, check out this website, do this, do that. And I, like, made really good friends with a bunch of writer types, including Christy Gant, who is now the editor, the co-editor-in-chief at, um... Fantasy, right? At Fantasy Magazine, right? Yeah. So she and I were, like, critique partners and really good buddies, and she started doing a lot of volunteer work for this editor that you've probably never, ever heard of. His name is John Joseph Adams. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, okay. So she was like an editorial assistant for him and she'd also signed up to help um, be an editorial assistant at Lightspeed, which hadn't launched yet, but like it was like starting. It was gonna start. And um, we both wrote short stories for like one of his like only ever open calls for like an anthology called um, The Way of the Wizard. And he had like 900 submissions for like four slots or something like that. And Christy and I both sold him stories for that anthology. And it was like mind-bogglingly amazing because like there's like reprints by like Neil Gaiman and George R.R. Martin and like, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I've sold two short stories before this to like markets that nobody's ever heard of and now I'm going to be published with like George R.R. Martin and I, I like, I just thought from here on out, I was going to be like winning awards. I was going to be like a famous writer and everything was going to change in my life. Um, Didn't quite work out that way, but something big did happen. And that is that Christy, at the time, JJA's anthologies included like these little introductory notes at the beginning of the story, um, which he would like get editorial assistants to write for him. (laughs) And uh, Christy was going to do that. She did a whole bunch of them. 
But like, because he launched Lightspeed and she started reading submissions and stuff, she was like overwhelmed with work. And I was like, oh yeah, well, maybe I could help out. And she was like, oh great, I'll ask John. And since I had told John a story, he was like, well, you apparently know how to make two sentences. So go crazy, <laughs> write a couple of, see if you can write these story introductions. So I wrote a couple of story introductions for that anthology. And then he was like, hey, do you want to work with me on more anthologies? So we did a couple of other anthologies where I got to like help him read. They were reprint anthologies mostly. Um, but I, I got to read submissions or like possible selections and write story introductions and get like, we just had a really good time working together. So that's how I got into editing uh, was, oh, I just want to help a friend. And it's kind of hilarious because previous to this at, at, concurrent at about the same time, two of our other friends had like decided to create this anthology of um, zombie erotica and which I have two stories in. Um, but like they were talking about what it was like editing that. And I actually like, I remember telling like my friends and my family, like, oh my gosh, being an editor sounds like the worst thing in the world. And I am never going to do that. Like never. It sounds so horrible. Um, yeah. And then in 2012, uh, JJA asked me if I would be his assistant editor at Fantasy Magazine during the time when he ran that, which I did for a year. And then it closed up again. And then I was like, Oh, I'm I'm writing tie-in fiction and stuff. I'm too busy to do more editorial stuff. I'm out of that world. Woo! This is the yeah. Paizo, the Paizo books, right? Yeah, yeah. I was so like when I looked up your bibliography, I was like Pathfinder. Like you have done, I feel like so many different projects that are like just very <laughs> different. It's really yeah. cool. It's like I have novels out in every like like all three of the big subgenres. You know, it's so funny. I love it. It's an inspiration. Oh, thanks, Maria. I don't know if it's like really a smart structure for a career. I think most people will tell you like, maybe not. But okay, I'm trying to do time. that right now. So like, don't tell me that. <laughs> I don't want to hear okay. it. Okay, <laughs> do that. Totally do that. Follow in my footsteps. Do exactly what I did. Yeah. It's also like, if we all really had that much control over what we were writing, I think we might make different decisions. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a yeah. little bit like, what can I finish? Like that I start? Like, and what actually will keep me interested? And it's like, sorry, I have to entertain myself and that means I have to write in like six genres. Is that a problem? Because get over it because I'm doing it. Yes, thank you. That is exactly it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so then like I had a day job and I worked at the Portland Children's Museum, which was alternating the most fun job and the most horrible job ever. <laughs> and one day they were like, hey, we're restructuring and you either have to meet X, Y, and Z like working requirements and you won't have any control over your schedule. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to quit. And then I was like, I'm just freelance writing and I'm not making any money. Oh no, <laughs> this is terrible. And at that point in time, just magically out of the blue, John Joseph Adams reached out to me and he said, hey, I really need more help running my magazines. If I pay you a very small amount that happens to be the same amount of your monthly payment for your student loans, um, Amazing. will you come help me? And then I was like, okay. And then editing became like my full-time like real gig. <laughs> so... This story was such a rich text for me. Like it kind of wove together so many things that I've been thinking a lot about recently. And I just, I can't like, 
I'm very impulsive. I can't help myself from like commenting on things. <laughs> um, one of the things I found really interesting, for, like starting from the very beginning is like you knew you wanted to do something creative. And then because creative professions are so like devalued in our, like the way we talk about jobs, it's like, oh, you can't make a living doing that or whatever. Um, we don't like really set people up for success. So if someone had said to you like, okay, you can definitely do that. You also need to be able to make money. So how can we, you know, position you in such a way that you can balance those two things, right? Um, you might have arrived at the same place earlier or maybe in like a, a more, I don't know, like financially secure position or something like that. Because I think ultimately, and this kind of goes back to what Essie was saying about like not being able to control what we write, like we're not actually able to just like shelve that part of ourselves. It's like a deep and fundamental part of like who we are, how we navigate the world, kind of how we process things. So like the idea that we can just like quit and not be writers. I mean, sometimes we can't, but like for, I think it's like, it's, it's actually really difficult to do. And so like, I think that was such an interesting story because ultimately, like, of course you were going to, in my mind, I'm like, of course you're going to find your way back to it. But like, of course I, I can see the, you know, retrospectively, but um, <laughs> yeah, I just, I kind of feel so much like, you know, it makes me think a lot about how we talk about artists and, and creating in our society and like kind of ways that we could structure so that people could be better set up to like kind of find their way in, in, in the world. I agree. It's like, it is like so heartbreaking that so many people who are so talented struggle so much financially. It's like, I mean, Laird Barron is like an icon in horror and thriller writing, right? Like he's this amazing writer that like so many people admire so much. And, you know, he's only just now left the hospital after this like huge healthcare crisis where he was, doctors told him he was hours away from death before like his partner finally got him to go to the hospital because he couldn't afford health insurance. Oh so he was just like letting him, like killing himself basically because he was so afraid of like not being able to pay for healthcare. And it's just like, oh, society, why do you have to suck like this? You know, it's like, I really feel, you know, I've been a house sitter. I've been, um, I did I was a laundry lady. I you know, I've I've done so many like jobs that don't pay very much because I basically have like three skills and that is uh chatting with people in a very friendly manner for a short period of time <laughs> and uh writing things and <laughs> <laughs> and some people are really smart about leveraging their ability to write things and make money. Um, <laughs> I could have been smarter about that. <laughs> well, I think part of being able to leverage your writing to make money, though, is to have the belief or the mindset that that's a doable project. And when you grow up, I, I think we're we're not all exactly the same age, but kind of similar age, ages. Like you, when you grow up with a um, cultural context that says that, you know, writing can't make money, then you don't start thinking about ways to to actually make that happen until, you know, you've kind of gone through a lot of pain and suffering. Whereas it like if right out of the gate, you were like, I'm going to be a writer and I have to figure out how to make that work for me or, you know, however, you, you, you get what I'm saying? Like, I think that yeah, it would have been a little bit, if not easier, maybe just emotionally easier, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, you don't yeah. have to go through that whole process that's like, well, I'm going to deny the one thing I actually want to do because I can't make any money doing it, so I'll just never do it. And then when you get to it, it's like it's shrouded in, oh, I should have started writing sooner. Oh, I should have believed in myself. Oh, if I had started this then, look how much further I'd be ahead. 
I mean, all of it's fake, right? Because like life can only be lived forward. But I think there is a lot of anguish. I think you're right about that, Maria, that we could avoid if we just were honest. Because like, here's the thing. It's like my family's like, you're never going to make any money as an artist. And I'm like, you don't make any money as a not artist. Like, I don't really get (laughs) what your point is here. Like now I can, I think that to myself. I'm like, you literally, we had, we were on food stamps. Like, what were you, what, what did you think, what future did you think you were saving me from? Like, no shade to food stamps. (laughs) Thankful for them. They saved my life. But like, why not do the art? If I'm already going to have like a life that's like tough, because for some of us, life is just tougher. Like, why not do something fun with my time? So I kind of hate that argument. Right. Yeah. I feel super lucky. Uh, My family was always like super encouraging of me to be a writer. But then I feel like the school system put like this intense pressure. You know, they're like, you're smart. You should make money. It was like, oh, right. I should do something amazing. And it didn't help that like, I'm also the kind of person that's always like, super interested in learning like all kinds of stuff. So like every subject, teachers are like, oh, you actually like chemistry? You're interested in it? You should be a chemist. And I was like, oh, okay. I I am interested in it. That's true. You know, it's totally how it was. That's real. That's real. Well, okay. So A, I'm glad that you persevered through so many twists and turns to bring you to today. <laughs> like what? I was just listening being like, yeah, no, that's relatable. Mm-hmm. Yes, I also have done that job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that's <laughs> the creative career. And the more you try and make it the center of your sort of, you know, day to day, let's say, the the weirder things happen, I think. <laughs> you know, the, the number I think of so. editorial yeah. jobs I've had where I'm like, Maria, you want to hear the weirdest story from this place? And she's like, yes, of course I do. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, like just let happened. me get a beer. Hold on. Let me, let me get set up here. <laughs> exactly. Hello, listeners. As you know, our society is built on capitalism. <laughs> among many other fucked up things. But you can help us for as little capitalism as we can make happen, which is you can rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us five stars. Say something cute about how fucking great we are. And you know what? You're going to help us with a little bit of time, but not any money. Again, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us five stars, babies. We love you. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
you know, I think it's time to talk about The Secret Skin, which is this oh extremely God, yes. cool novella. It's called a Sawmill Gothic novella. It came out from Neon Hemlick in 2021. And oh my, oh my stars and garters. How is it so gay? How is it so Victorian? <laughs> how is it so, oh my God. You know, you're like, it's a haunted house story. I know what happens in these. And then you're like, oh my God. And then that? What the fuck? Like how... I, it's like it's it's in the tropes. It's referencing the tropes. It's flipping them on their heads. I love it. It's amazing. Uh, how did this novel start for you? A novella. I'm sorry. I'm saying so. I'm so glad you liked it. <laughs> oh, I'm obsessed. Well, you know, I've I've pretty much lived in Oregon like all of my life, and so I always felt like, uh, you know. Nowadays, Oregon is like kind of a cool place. I mean, we're back on the you're not cool list now, but like briefly, you know, from 20, 000, from 2000 to like 2019, Oregon was considered like, you know, rad and cool. And it's where all the good beer is from. And there's like all the good food and everybody loves Oregon. Every, every TV show that's like scary is set in Oregon, whatever. Um, but like growing up, it wasn't like that. Um, <laughs> I mean, my sister did a study abroad program in college and she like met all these like snooty people from the East Coast and they were like, Oregon, aren't you still fighting Indians back there? Like, oh, you know, and that's like 1991 or something, right? Oh my gosh. And, you know, it was the kind of place where, you know, there's just never been a lot of money and it's, muddy and mucky and kind of gross and like what comes out of like there's with the exception of like Ken Kesey like people don't really think never didn't like in the 80s and 90s like Oregon was not seen as like a culturally relevant place in the world um I think a lot of like Canadian writers felt that way for a long time too. Like you're like, we were just out in the woods doing our thing. <laughs> um and so I always like I have always loved gothic stuff. I'm pretty sure it stems back to watching Scooby-Doo too much as a child. But it always felt like like the tropiest tropes of gothic stuff would never apply to life in Oregon. Except that also there are like the occasional few places where, you know, like the secret skin is based on a real house that really existed here in Oregon. And it's it's sort of lightly inspired by um kind of a mix of Shirley Jackson family and this actual lumber company family. Um, but like then taken to, you know, horrific, nasty, unpleasant turns. Um, so like, I just really, really wanted to, like, do something that felt super Oregon-ish, which is, like, where the whole idea of the sawmill gothic concept comes from. Um, but then also, that was just kind of really a love letter to my favorite gothic stuff, like Jane Eyre and The Haunting of Hill House and, of course, Rebecca, which uh, I think a lot of that book comes from Rebecca. And I, by Daphne du Maurier. Um, and I tried to write this book in 2011, I guess, was when I first started working on it. And it was going to be like a much larger novel. It was even more sumptuous, more muddy, more sawmill-y, more sexy. It was just like way over the top. And I was writing it extremely slowly. And at the time, 
I was, you know, it was before I'd published anything, any novels yet. And I didn't have a whole lot of belief in my process. And I I just, I kind of hit up against this feeling that like, if this book was going to work, I would be writing it faster. And so I like dove in and like wrote like another 40,000 words that were totally... I mean, they could have been written by an AI chatbot, right? <laughs> like they oh were God. so generic and they were so different from the beginning of the book. And when I, I, I like one point I stopped and I looked, I was like, what are you doing? You are not writing the book you want to write. And so I just like put the book in the trunk and I was like, maybe I'll do something with it at some other point in time. And Christy Yant, who keeps coming up on my story, she's like such a huge part of like my early writing experience. She always remembered that book and she would ask me about it. Um, She's like a, a big Gothic fan. And she started editing novellas, acquiring and, and editing novellas for Tor.com. Uh, like, I don't know, 2019 or or something like that, maybe 2018. And she said, Wendy, you should take that book, the, the Sawmill Gothic, and turn it into a novella and send it to me. And so I just was like, yes, yes, I should. Because I had sort of just had kind of a break So I wrote this science fiction novel called An Oath of Dogs that was published in 2017. And it was, its release was pretty terrible experience. Um, It's not like the greatest book ever. I mishandled a lot of things. I was starting in my own life to like kind of explore more stuff about gender issues. Um, And so I really, I wanted to include like you know, characters of different gender and gender experience. But then I wasn't really thinking about like how if I just changed this one character in my book to being like a trans person, like how that would actually reflect on, like it would be like not cool as opposed to cool like I thought it would. So it was like bad, bad, bad representation. And, you know, Locus gave it a really bad review and I just felt so terrible about the book. And I wanted more freedom to write in multiple genres. And I felt a lot of pressure from my then agent to just stick with science fiction, which I felt like was actually not a very good match for me. I was really like burnt out on science fiction Mm. after having that sci-fi novel book come out. Um, So anyway, I had also like, I'd gone through this like really serious bout of depression after Donald Trump got elected. I think we were all there with you, Wendy. I think we were all there with you. And what pulled me out of that was playing horror video games, a particular horror video game called uh, Until Dawn, which I cannot Mm. recommend enough. It is so much fun. But it had like kind of transformed me from being like, I want to be a writer of whatever I want to write to being like, yeah, I still want to write whatever I want to write, but I am now a horror horror evangelist, right? Like, I just want to spread the gospel of horror and bring its healing touch into like everyone's heart. And I thought maybe a good way to do this would be to write horror novels. And I was like, ah, here I have an editor. They're interested in this book. That was like a gothic book project. Gothic is like adjacent to horror. You know, there's some overlap. I'm going to like, 
put these two missions together and I'm going to take this book that I always wanted to write. I'm going to turn it into a novella and it's going to be awesome. And I had just like taken a trip down to visit um, Shore Acres State Park, which is like now just like this beautiful botanical garden and like beaches and stuff like that. Um, But it had been the property of this like lumber baron. And I was like, you know, I was looking at pictures of this old house and hearing about the lavish parties that these people would throw. And like, it all just came together for me. And I just really quickly, really quickly for me, I think it probably took like four months. um, I dove back into what I liked best from the original version of the book and streamlined it and turned it into this novella. And then I sent it to Christy and she was just like super busy and it it took years to go through the process of editing it and getting it sent to tour.com and they eventually rejected it, um, which is kind of, I think, for the best because I had so much fun working with Neon Hemlock and they were so positive and Dave Ring, who's the editor, he's so gay and we had so much fun working together and he was so supportive and he just really believed in that book so much and it was magnificent experience. It was like so good. So that's, I guess it's, um, it's story of how it came to be. Sorry, it's kind of long. No, I mean, that's the thing is I think so often people who don't, you know, or maybe are, are earlier in their career, they're writing shorter pieces, don't know that this is, this, this is it. Like this is the mucky, gross part of writing book length projects, right? It's just like, you yeah. just keep trying and you're like, I can't stop thinking about these, these, this like fucking gay girl. So I have to like write her sometime, you know? And it's like, she lives in your head yeah. for years and you're like, can you please leave me alone? You know, I think that's like, <laughs> that's, that's part of the process. It, it, yeah. Is it romantic and cool in some ways? Totally. But it's also kind of yeah. annoying. Like, being a writer's annoying. It's like, oh, people I made up bother me a lot. Like, I made them up, but they won't leave me alone. So I don't really know what to say. (laughs) Uh, No, we love Dave Ring. We actually got to publish Dave Ring's super sexy flash fiction about werewolves in our second issue of Decoded Pride. And it was like a... That super so fun. Cool. Yeah. So Dave, Dave's the coolest. So, and, and Neon Hemlock's always doing just the coolest work. So I'm really, I mean, it seems like a perfect home for the work. So I think yeah. it all, you know, it all came together. The universe really provided hey, that and one. sometimes it, it, it really does. worked out. Sometimes it does. When you were talking about an oath of dogs, it was interesting to hear you talk and reflect about like, okay, I kind of flubbed this, this representation. And part of the reason I, I do want to talk about that is because I think in the secret skin, you know, you you. I think you do a lot of um, use a lot of self control, so to like not jump into giving someone from a different timeline like a series of labels that like wouldn't. It would be you know at the very least like not true to the time, and at the the most kind of they could be inaccurate. And but we still get to yeah. see a character who is definitely some kind of gender weird. You know whether whether she's uh, a trans man or she's non binary or what we we don't really know, right? But the main character's love interest, but you do it through this super, you're so fucking clever, right? So we see her through this <laughs> lens of just like this beautiful, perfect princess kind of woman who shows up and she's going to make the main character's uh, brother's life so much better because she's perfect. And then you strip that away. You know, we see her in, in the middle of the night and she's wearing, you know, what we might at the time would be called like men's clothing, right? I believe it's called men's trousers is how it's referred to. And, you know, and then as, as the story unfolds, we go further and further down that, that line. And then 
I saw it as this beautiful critique or not even critique, but it's the interrogation of, of gender as a performance. Like when is gender a performance we give to save our lives? Right. And, and that felt so integral to that character. So I guess, I'm, you know, and hey, I've flubbed shit before too. So if we don't want to go back to it, I'm <laughs> fine with that. But I'm curious for you, do you, do you feel like there's something you learned through the process of maybe flubbing? And then, you know, I would say this is great trans or non-binary or gender weird or gender queer, some kind of something, gender representation. Um, I'm guess I guess it does it change how you see things now when you reflect on an oath of dogs? Well, I think part of it just kind of goes back to what we talked about in like, in how you're in like, like being like really true to the character. Like, I think it's really easy for writers to be like, oh, I need like a character to be, do X, Y, and Z things in this, um, in this story I'm writing. Like, oh, it's the bad guy and they need to do these villainous things or this person uh, needs to be, you know, they need to make a big mistake or something. And so like you, you give them these roles in your story, but sometimes you don't think through, like especially on secondary characters, like all the details of their personality and how they combine to make them like a full-fledged human. Um, and I, I think that's something that happens so much with secondary characters. And so like you can just kind of shoehorn people characters into these roles because they need to be filled in the story. Um, and then, but then you you don't think about like, it, it's A, doesn't always feel believable. Like I started, like, like the character in An Oath of Dogs, whose name, oh my gosh, actually escapes me at this time, even though they're like a pretty great character and I had intended for them to be a super major character if I ever wrote a sequel to that book, which I outline but never sold <laughs> um and I really liked that character a lot and they were she was this really cool strong interesting trans woman um but she like I had done a lot of reading about trans women and I you know I I didn't have anybody like read my book who was trans um which I think was really stupid of me um but also, like, I was like, I need a character to have caused this problem. And, oh, this would be a great explanation for it because they would need money because this is this evil capitalistic system. But I put that, I mean, like, this whole plot point being about, like, her, like, top surgery. And so it was, like, her, her like, breast augmentation. And it was, like, her creation. And so it was, like, it, I don't know, it just felt inappropriate, right? Like it was using transness as a plot point, which is like you'd never do that for like anybody else's like identity being a plot point. And so it was really uncool. And I think a, a big part of it just taught me to pay more attention to what I was doing with secondary characters to go more slowly. And also I think now I would probably like my book, the it was like one of those things where like the editor goes on sabbatical. So like you're left with a different editor who maybe, you know, that just wasn't in their wheelhouse. So like there was nobody looking out for me either. So yeah. I think it probably in, in editing probably could have been, you know, helped a lot. But it, it came across like, I don't know, like I just wanted to stick a trans person in this book because it was 
cool and added diversity, but then wasn't respectful. And that's not why I wanted to have that person in that book. And now I think I only would, I only want to work with having really authentic characters in my stories. That's like my goal. (laughs) Mm. Well, you know, honestly, I just want to say thank you. I think so rarely do we show our fuck ups to each other and, and be vulnerable and honest and say like, yeah, this was like, and, and and I think what I love is like, you're not beating yourself up, right? You're not pitying yourself or like any of that. It's like, oh, I have a responsibility. I'm going to do better next time. And yeah, as an editor, I have the opportunity to help other people do better so they don't feel like they're hung out to dry making these, these big decisions that are, that can be, you know, like you said, you didn't intend it in the way that it came across. And it's like, yeah, but that's, that's what an editor's job is to do, right? <laughs> is to catch that and go, <laughs> right. Uh, I don't yeah. think you meant this this way. If you did, that's a different <laughs> conversation. Um, you know, so I don't know. It's, it's interesting to hear about your, your uh, journey with that, especially in con- concert with your own gender identity journey, because to me, the secret skin, Maria and I were texting about this. I was like, this is like, so queer. It's so queer and it's very fabric. You know, every aspect of it is. There's like 10 texts back and forth that just say, it's so queer. <laughs> it's so Exclamation queer. point, yes. happy face. Yes. Exclam- you know. Yay. Um, <laughs> you know, confession, I loved it so much. I, when I finished it, I was like, I must have more Wendy. And so I immediately started, like, <laughs> literally 20 seconds later, I started The Deer Kings. Very different vibe enjoyed it very much. Uh, but I was just like, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, oh my God, I, I'm not done. I'm not done consuming the way this person, you know, puts narratives together. And I think actually in that, you know, as I'm sort of, I guess, segueing in some ways, the Dear Kings also has, I think, really profound queer representation. And so it's interesting to, it's hard, right? Like I wish that A, either I could like make up my mind about anything about who I am so that I could be like, nah, I have the authority to write about this thing because I am that thing. And then I'm like, ah, but now I'm this thing over here. I'm another. Oh, look at this. How interesting. I keep changing. Which is like, you know, what we're fighting for. Non-binary people are like, you're allowed to change. Anyways. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting to think about how you wrestle with your own identity through creating stories, right? And like, as you change, those stories change with you. And so, you know, where the the queerness and the transness in the secret skin feels just so organic and so, I mean, beautiful, just truly beautiful, it's beautiful to yes. see people. It's very beautiful. It, in a time where AFAB people, right, are, 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 you don't really have much, right, <laughs> of an existence yeah. at all, like outside of men. And to watch these these two people who are AFAB like navigate that and yeah, do they make some mis- maybe mistakes or missteps or maybe like things that you would say, hey, that's not great. But given your context, I think it's kind of great. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, such, I'm like the worst at like being like, your character's morally good. I'm like, your character did something I would do. Relatable. Count it, you know? Um, I, I just, I think that like, it's, it's, I guess it's just kind of fascinating to hear you talk about how these things have evolved for you because, again, in The Secret Skin and The Dear Kings, the, the, the queerness is so much of what honestly made me love the stories. And, and oh, it, it, I don't know, it's just really, it's really exciting. Um, I'm curious, you know, I also read, I read an interview, I can't remember where it was. Maybe it was in... I don't know. We're sorry, whoever interviewed you before that I forgot. Uh, but you talked about, you know, you were writing The Secret Skin and The Deer Kings 
simultaneously at different points or like you would kind of like jump back and forth. And I'd love to hear a little yeah. bit about that interplay. And I mean, hey, if it, if it connects to queerness, let's go there. But if not, you know, I just want to hear about the interplay of writing the, the two major works. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess because I like I wrote the I wrote the novella and it went to an editor and then eventually like a, I don't know, like a year later, she sent me edits. Um, so I, it, and I have like, I've kind of developed a system of writing that uh, totally goes against like the whole like bad first draft style of writing. Um, and that is that I can't, I will like, I'll write for a while and then my brain will say, hmm, this is not right. And it, then it says, it just puts up a sign. It's like, out to lunch, see you soon. And it's like, oh, okay. I guess I guess I'm not working on that project for a while. So I set it aside and I like, you know, write some short stories or I start working on another novel. And then I hear a knock at the door and it's like, uh, hello, I've been in my brain office for like a week now. Why haven't you been paying attention to me? We are now back to go for, you know, novel Z. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess I'm putting this other thing on the back burner so I can get back to work on this other thing. Um, which means that for me, pretty much everything I write is informed by everything else I write. Or a lot of times, like I'm writing short stories as like a way to kind of work out like some kind of weird problem or fascination, fascination or obsession that I have like in a book that I can't work on but I got to keep working on like whatever I'm cre- like hooking into, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, so there's definitely like no clear narrative in my head of how a book gets written. <laughs> By and large, it's, it's a very meandering path. Um, yeah. So I, uh, I had come up with the, uh, the basic idea for the Dear King's before An Oath of Dogs ever came out, I had this vision of writing a book about a town and it had a cult and the cult was centered around um, high school football and there was a lot of bad stuff going on. Um, and that's that's how far that book stayed for kind of a long time. Uh, but I like outlined a whole bunch of other possible novels and, you know, pitched them to different places. And then once totally burned all my bridges with like every publisher and agent and things that I had. And then I was like not working. And then, in you know, there was like this long period of like doom and despair where I wasn't like really writing. And um, this is the real talk I really appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like one of the things that's so valuable about just listening to this story is it's a very real reflection, I think, of the way it goes for most writers, which is that Number one, writing takes a long time to do. And then once it's out there, it's out there. And even as the culture behind you changes, right? So like the conversations that we're having now around transness and like the general population are very different than the conversations we were having. in like, so the book came out like what in 2018? So it was like written in like what, 2016? I mean, it's easy to forget like how far that conversation has come in such a short time. Um, But I think it's changed quite a bit. And then the problem is like when you write something and you publish it, even when, you know, culture itself kind of becomes more aware that like, hey, this is not cool or, you know, we need to be more careful about X or Y or Z. Like you can't go back and like unmake that book. Like that book is there. It exists. And you kind of have to just like learn from the experience and like, you know, move on to the next thing. And then the other piece of it is like, 
you know, and I'm a person who doesn't have a very long career as a novelist, but it's already had a lot of ups and downs, right? And (laughs) there's no point where you're like good enough that like, or successful enough that you don't continue to have these disappointments and these downs. So kind of, I think in the very beginning of the conversation, you were talking about how you sold your story and you were like, this is it. Everything is up from here on out. I had that exact same thought when Nightmare bought my story because it was my first pro sale. And I was like, this is it. Everything is like up from here on out. And the amount of disappointment just in the last like six months, like to be totally honest, I mean, I had a film deal fall through. I've had like, you know, um, I I had a book that I wrote that like did not sell after selling a book. You know, it's just like this whole, that is the experience. And the fact that we're never honest about it because we're all performing, you know, we're all performing success at all times so that like publishers want to associate with us, blah, 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 capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Like, I feel like it it makes people feel like there's something wrong with them when their career doesn't follow that trajectory or they're like doing art wrong somehow if if that's not what happens. And then also it puts this pressure on us to somehow make a perfect product our first time like out of the gate because it's going to be there forever. And like a huge part of being an artist is being able to say like, this is going to be imperfect. It's going to be trade-offs. It's going to be a lot of compromises because you can't, you can't have a book that's like perfectly intricately plotted and easy to follow and then also is like very audacious in its plotting right so like for example you know you, I think that one thing I've noticed in your work is that sometimes you can be really ambitious about structure right and so sometimes I have to take like an extra second and think okay am I in 2018 am I in 20 you know like what's happening here and so like all writing is compromises all writing involves like um I guess I've already lost like the thread of what I was trying to say this is so funny like I'm like talking to try to like find it again um but I think the, the point I'm trying to make is like you know you you can't you can't do that right like you have to be kind with yourself if you're going to be in this business for any amount of time because it's a brutal devastating very disappointing business and the people that are supposed to support you and, be, and help you like your publisher you know you you work so hard to get a publisher and then they just kind of like shunt you off on an editor who because your main person's on sabbatical like that's horrible I'm so sorry that happened um, <laughs> you know what I mean I don't know so I just I just found the whole story like very like I was on the edge of my seat I was like this is this is it like I'm, I'm I would watch this movie you know. So, <laughs> oh yeah, thanks. That you you said it so well. It is, it is a tough business. Oh man! And now we all cry. <laughs> and now we and all. And then cry. we have yes, the podcast exactly. so we can talk to each other and encourage <laughs> yeah. each other. Yeah, I was actually I was just I did an interview earlier this morning and I was talking to uh, Elizabeth Peach, who is a uh, indie comic creator, and we were talking about how. For her, she went to art school, and art school was very similar to what we were talking about with college, where art school was like, oh, you make your important art. And she was like, I'm going to make comics. And they were like, no, you don't, bad. And she was like, I'm still going to make comics? And if I'm not going to, it was the same kind of conversation. Like, if I'm not going to make money anyways as an artist, like, I'll find ways to, like, have a Patreon. I'll find ways to, like, you know, we talked about being on Webtoons, different pieces like that. And it's just, it's really interesting because I think that it's a good, you know, it's an interesting time to be having this conversation, right? Because there is a lot of animosity towards artists that's kind of been uh, unearthed with, uh, you know, AI art. And we can talk, you know, also, um, and I can't remember the name of it ever, but it's like chat, GPT, GPT, chat, GPT, you know, like, and I, I consider writers artists. So like, you know, all kinds of art, I think is being sort of, it can feel like it's being tacked by, you know, AI. And it's interesting how people are like, well, artists are talented. And it's like, 
Bitch, I wish. I fucking wish I was just straight up talented. It's like, no, I slam my head against the same project over and over and over and over. I've, you know, there's a book I've been working on for over 10 years that I'm like, you know, buckle it up, May. I'm gonna do another draft. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> you just you you just keep going. And that's how you learn to write too, is is by writing. And I think it can be incredibly discouraging, but it's also like you have to remember, and I, I thought Elizabeth said this really well, it's like, you know, if you make someone laugh, if you make someone cry, if someone writes you a note and is like, wow, this meant a lot to me, or I couldn't, I couldn't put it down, whatever it is, like that's, that's as much the payoff as anything else. And, and Maria, you and I were talking about this too, of like, if you try and put the success in front of the work, if like success is your goal, but you have like a, success can be defined very broadly, right? Or like you have a narrow definition or whatever it is. But if you're, if you can't enjoy creating, that's never going to make it worth it. You know what I mean? Like it's never going to yeah. pay off enough to be like, oh, good. It was worth it to almost lose my mind to get the plot of this book right. You know, <laughs> it's only worth it because you enjoyed or you did it, you know, <laughs> got the plot together. I have not completely sold on the, like, I know, uh, you know, AI is going to get rid of coding and blah, 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 blah. Cause like I'm, I'm a computer programmer by my like day trade or whatever. So like, this is something I've been thinking a lot about. I actually have some AI that I use as like an assistant at times to like help me with like some basic tasks when I'm like too lazy to do like a bunch of typing. Um, if people knew like how, how involved of a process, like pretty much every product that they consume is, whether that's code or like a movie or a book, like people have this idea that like a book emerges because like a writer gets an idea and then they make the book and then somehow the book just like magically appears. But actually there's like a 30 person team in terms of like, you know, the marketing and the publishing and and, and editorial and someone has to like format all the files and like, you know, design the cover. I'm, I'm not like, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sold here because like one of the hardest pieces is handoff, right? That's a big piece of it, right? Like the handoff between um, writer and editor, handoff between like editor and the next person. Like there were so many people involved in my book that would like email me and I had no idea what their job was or what they were doing. <laughs> They'd be like, yeah, we've got your audio files here for this like sample and da da da. And like, you know, I just, I like, I just, I... If you knew like how many how many days I have spent because like we we're at the part now in like AI coding where like making an item perfectly centered on a page should be super easy in terms of like code but getting that to work for like all devices mm -hmm. and balancing it like so it's fast enough for like slow networks and it looks good on mobile and it's accessible for screen reader like it's not I eh, I don't I don't believe it yet like I'll believe it when I see it because they were saying we were going to have self-driving cars like 15 yeah, years where's ago, <laughs> where's my fucking hoverboard where's my fucking hoverboard no I'm on the same page where I'm also kind of like and if it is going to take over I don't think the scariest AI is the AI that's making art I'm a little bit more concerned about <laughs> the AI controlling all the nuclear warheads you know what I mean that that's my problem. But I like to, I, I'm really into like dystopian AI stuff. Ooh, I love that. I'm like, ooh, that feels real. But I don't know. With my art, I'm like, well, am I that good anyways? You know what I mean? Like, 
like? I don't think, like, <laughs> I don't think AI would necessarily even be dystopian. I don't know if, like, okay, I'm going to botch this really bad because I'm trying to, like, like, I have no memory. It's the ADHD. I have, like, no, it's horrible. Uh, but there's this, like, contest that a major university runs every year that I completely forgot the name of. And, like, one day I'll, like, figure it out and email you and put it in the show notes. Um, but the goal is to write a program that basically wins against other programs. And it's kind of like a rock, paper, scissors thing. So, like, you can, you can either choose to, like, attack or you can, like, ally yourself with the other program or you can, like, um, do nothing or something like that. And so, like, people make all of these different programs. And consistently, the one that wins is, like, be nice to other programs unless they've already been mean to me. And it's, like, the most elegant solution. It's, like, super, super short to write. And it usually wins because actually, like, being altruistic and being cooperative is, it does it offer and confer advantages to survival. And so, like, I don't, I don't even believe, like, I think if the AI gets smart enough, maybe it'll be like, you know, I don't know about this dystopian thing. Like, maybe we should all just have, like, universal basic income and then we can all just win. Like, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, I don't think we can even see where this is going, to be totally honest. I think that storytelling is so much more than just words on the page. Oh, I, I bet you two will be like, what? Never conceived of that. Um, and, and so I think, you know, when we, when, we, when we are concerned about AI, I can only get so concerned, honestly, because I think you're, what we talked about with your writing, Wendy, and, and also what you're looking for as an editor, that rich human character, maybe, you know, I, I if I'm proven wrong one day, I guess we'll delete this episode. Just kidding. I don't care. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I just don't see AI doing that. Like I've, I, you know, we have a slush pile for Dakota. You know, I'm reading 200 stories in like, you know, three or four weeks. And like, I can just tell who's put time in. Do you know what I mean? Who's done drafts? Yeah, Like totally. that's clear. Totally. So like, I think I'd be able to know, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but it. Well, also originality, right? Like uh, one of the issues they're having with AI art, for example, is that when new technology is developed, there are no artworks it's able to make with that thing in it because it doesn't know what it looks like, right? That's it can't right. conceive of something that doesn't already exist in its database. And when I think about your work, for example, The Secret Skin, it is original. It's something, I I, I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating about it is it, it treads, treads, treads these very well-worn paths, right? Like Gothic, like we've all been there. We know it when we see it. Um, it's very like Shirley Jackson-esque, Um but it feels very fresh and new, uh, particularly for some of the things that Essie was touching on earlier. And like, I don't, I, I feel like, you know, that's, I think so many people when they read fiction, they're specifically looking for deep character and originality, which are two things that the technology is not really that great at. So, so there's hope for us yet. There's hope for us yet. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> you know, Wendy, oh. I read it. Uh, an interview in Nightmare Magazine with you when you were first becoming the editor-in-chief. And I there were just some really cool concepts in there that I wanted to come back to if, if you're open to it. Yay. And I think it'll make us sort of weave back into the secret skin and the deer kings <laughs> in an interesting way. Oh, so, <laughs> You know, one of the things you talked about is being, you know, into Lovecraftian horror, into cosmic horror. And the reason I want to talk about it is, because uh, I'm going to guess that what I'm going to share is like probably, you know what? Whatever. I'm not going to guess anything. I'm just going to share it. So we talked to, for episode 150, the lovely Nadia Shemes, who uh, wrote this beautiful graphic novel with Marie Enger that is called Where Black Stars Rise. And it is cosmic horror as well. And something that Nadia said as we were talking about it, I thought was so beautiful. Nadia was like, well, it's really funny because, you know, Lovecraftian cosmic horror was like a lot of cishet white men being like, 
The universe is cruel and unfeeling. This is a shock to me. I am deeply upset. And Nadia's point was like, as a brown person and a non-binary person, um, I don't feel that way. You know, she, she was like, listen, like the world, I know the world is cruel and un, un, unfeeling for me because actually other people in my life are cruel and unfeeling for me. And I think that that's such an interesting way that I think so many diverse voices have taken, you know, what Lovecraft was doing, what what a lot of cosmic horror was as it originated doing and made it different by being like, yes, but that that isn't an impersonal threat. It's a personal threat. And and what you do, okay, I'm just going to take us there. In The Secret Skin, it feels like you layer that impersonal threat on top of the personal threat, which makes it all just the more tense and and intense. So, oh, tense and intense. Who would have thought? Um, but, you know, I guess I'm just curious, you know, is that, does that reflect some of what your thinking is when you talk about cosmic horror and Lovecraft? Or where has that changed for you as you've now sunken your teeth in as the editor-in-chief? I'm just curious on the, on the cosmic horror front. So, good question. Tough, complicated. Um, Fair. You know, I had never... I'd never read anything by Lovecraft until I was like in my late 20s, early 30s. And, you know, there's like, um, I started like Googling, like, you know, who are the greatest horror writers and and like, what should I, I read by them? And I knew of H.P. Lovecraft from two things. Uh, one is that I live here in Portland, Oregon, which is the home of the H.P. Lovecraft Film Fest. So I had seen posters for the film festival, but I'd never been to it. And it always looked quirky and weird and creepy. And I liked that. Um, And then like, I am related to a lot of people who like to play board games and role-playing games. And so like, I would be at like game shops and um, there was like a t-shirt I went up buying for my brother. And it's like a Oh, I'm trying to think of who the artist is. He does art for the game Munchkin. It's like, and a lot of Steve Jackson projects. And it's a picture of this like really goofy looking cow with like tentacles. And it has a call of cow Thulu. And I just thought that was like hilarious. Um, So that was my background for H.P. Lovecraft, right? And so I get a book of H.P. Lovecraft stuff and I'm probably like right around 30. And it was so totally and completely my jam. I I was not ready to love Lovecraft like I did when I read it. Um, I think there's so much of it is, I mean, we don't like, the whole, it's all about nerds and outsiders as like a person who is a queer nerd. It just felt like it could be about me, even though he's like a white guy, you know, who I could never be like, um, who probably wouldn't like me very much. But although I, I don't know, there's, there's a lot that said that like he, he was in fact growing as a person. And so maybe if he'd lived a longer life, hadn't given himself botulism or however he, he did kill himself, maybe he would have like stepped it up and been like, hey, you know what? I am not what I appear to be. Wasn't he also like deeply mentally ill? He he definitely had mental health issues. That's for sure. But anyway, so like I started going to the HP Lovecraft Film Festival and just meeting a ton of people who are involved in like that landscape. So I just 
know and love so many people who write cosmic horror and write things that are Lovecraftian. Um, I've published like so much Lovecraftian fiction. Like I, who knows how many of my short stories have like the words Ia, Ia, Photogen, you know, stuff like that. Um, but then like, uh, yeah. So I, I kind of like ate it up without really thinking much about it at first, right? I just enjoyed the torrent of weird delights. Um, and in fact, like at Christmas time, I pretty much listen like nonstop to uh, the the like H.P. Lovecraft like film. Um, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society has like these these um, Christmas carols, like solstice songs that are all about like the whole weird what. Oh yeah, they're they're great. You know, I've been trying to develop like a new holiday playlist because I pretty much hate all of like Christmas music. So I love the idea of like Lovecrafty and Chris. That's gonna be so funny. I'm gonna look that up. Oh yeah, yeah. So like at our house, like there's a lot of of solstice celebration by you know talking about Cthulhu and <laughs> the stars and the things that are coming to get at. And yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, but yeah, so like uh, at a certain point, obviously, you start thinking about this stuff that you've consumed as a younger person and you're like, oh, does this really like jibe with my, what I want to do with my own work or like what I want to see happen in the genre and how it grows. Um, and I think for a lot of us who are involved, it's like Lovecraftian stuff, fandom. It's, it's a hard place to be. I mean, like, I mean, like the HP Lovecraft Film Festival itself is like run by a couple and she's like an Asian woman. So like, uh, like of Asian heritage. And so like, she definitely isn't like, yay, white men, woohoo. But she is like so tapped into like the weirdness, the otherness, all these other great just like things that are like a part of that pantheon. Well, and I think there's a ton of people who are deeply engaging with Lovecraft's work with that with a with a critical lens with a and taking the good with the bad or you know using it to to turn those things on its head. So you're absolutely right. I think it's it's nuanced, you know, it's not like oh, let's throw this all in the trash can by any means, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I just think that, um, so that, that's kind of like where I've kind of tried to roll with as an editor. And in fact, I'm going to do a themed issue this year for August at Nightmare, or well, we, we hope it turns out that way. Um, that's kind of focused around like the three genres that Lovecraft really sank his tentacles into the most, which is like cosmic horror, weird fiction, and um, gothic stuff. Um, and I'm going to call it my favorite things because they're like my three favorite flavors oh, of, I love of that. like the horror spec world. And I'm just going to be like, yeah, I want to see what people bring to it, to those categories that I love so much that are more than Lovecraft, but that he did stuff with. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, in, in, in that same interview, um, I was I was really moved because you talked about the role horror has played in in your personal life and how as a lover of horror, how you found healing and, uh, you know, you, you went, you gave a lot of examples, so I won't read it back to you, but, you know, I'm curious <laughs> for you, you know, you even mentioned this earlier in the interview, you, you know, you were like, I'm out here to like spread the good news of, of horror. And, you know, I definitely have that relationship to horror where 
I don't know. I think you said, you know, it was like a good jump scare could help you like sort of shake out of depression. Because like I vibe with that hardcore. Like I I remember as like a young person being kind of, you know, really frustrated and then like, you know, watching a Saw movie and then being like, ah, I feel refreshed. Like I went to the spa, <laughs> you know? And I, I think that that's a silly example, of course. But I'm curious for you, you know, as you think about the the role of horror in in your personal life, is is you know, do you still find healing and hope in it? Is it something that you find empathy in? Where 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 is it at for you? You know, more as a consumer maybe than an editor and and writer. Oh yeah, horror is like it's my feel good genre. You know, like it's 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 the good place for me. <laughs> I feel like. I don't know. I feel like it's like this great place to practice feeling bad so you don't have to feel bad in real life, right? Like, it's a safety valve. I just think it's like so great. So I I watch horror movies all the time. I read horror novels all the time. Uh, Yeah, I just, I love it. (laughs) Mm, Me too. Me too. It's so, it's so fun how something so terrible can be so cozy. You know what I mean? I'm like, ooh, yeah, exactly. That person's head getting chopped off. Ooh, this feels like home. You know, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Probably need more therapy. <laughs> well, I also feel there are categories of horror that are not for me. Sure. Yeah. Like, um, like Jack Ketchum has a book, and I can't remember what it's called, but it's based on a true story about a girl who was. Uh, she lived with a foster family and she was like tormented and tortured and abused until she died, right? And this is like a, a real life thing that happened. And it's like, it's just thinking about it. Like I read like the Wikipedia article about the girl's true story. And like, I'm like, I could never read that book. That mm-hmm. would not be the kind of horror that left me feeling good. It's not the kind of horror that I want. Um, I go to horror to escape like the real life horrors, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I like the kind of, a lot of horror has a lot of, um, it tends to reward good behavior. Um, It tends to like, um, you know, it, it tends to be, I like the kind of horror that's like, got supernatural stuff or that has monsters that are not human monsters or if it does have human monsters they get what's coming to them in the (laughs) end or or maybe they don't get it but it's like I don't know somehow funny and weird or you know stuff like that um and I think that everybody probably like, I know so many people, they're like, oh, I hate horror movies or, oh, I don't like to read horror stories or, ew, horror, that's just like nasty. Um, but I deep down believe that everybody has some kind of horror story that is for mm-hmm. them. Um, and that's kind of like my goal at the magazine is to find like horror stories for everyone. <laughs> oh, I love that. I am going to quote you from that interview one more time. I'm so sorry. Uh, but You said that your goal was to give every human being the opportunity to have terrible, terrible nightmares. And I just, I was so moved by that because you were talking specifically in the interview about like, oh, there was, horror has a history of like beating up certain groups of people. I wonder which groups we're talking about, you know, or like, you know, being really. It's me, right? It's it's you specifically, Maria. That is who we're talking about. You're right. Uh, You know, where it's, it's like, you know, I don't know old shit that you you don't we don't have to carry that baggage right that doesn't have to be horror's future and and i think 
the idea of like everybody, like queer people, trans people, black people, brown people, disabled people, everybody, everybody deserves to have some really bad nightmares. You know what I mean? Like I fucking <laughs> yeah. love that concept because I think it's so real. Oh. So um, I just wanted to share that with our listeners because I was like, that's cool, Wendy. You're cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, I have two things. The first is that this is not a question at all. Um, this is a comment, but then I have a question. So it's I actually can't read Lovecraftian horror, and I think it's because, like, when I'm deeply in my mental illness, it says, like, it there's some kind of weird commonality with like when Lovecraft is going off the deep end, and it's like it's a little too close, you know. Like I start thinking, like, well, maybe this is re- any. It's not important. Um, my question is, could you tell us a little bit about the Creek Girl? Because I think everyone would love to hear more about this upcoming novel. <laughs> and, you know, I would love to I would love to hear more about it. So Yay. Well, um, you know, the Creek Girl is uh it is actually like cosmic horror. Um, so it ties in nicely to this conversation yes. about Lovecraft and cosmic horror and stuff like this. Um, but it's also because it's by me and I'm obsessed with Oregon. Uh it's very much an Oregon story. Um, you know, when I was a kid, like, you know, there's a lot of, of serial killers from the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of, like, there are a lot of, like, I, I don't do a whole lot of true crime because it's like, it's a little too much for me sometimes. Mm. But like, I started reading a book about the Green River Killer and they were just like talking about like, oh yeah, there's like basically like a paradise of places you could just dump a body and no one would ever know it's like oh yeah that's that's totally true why am i going out there in these places that are so awful and dangerous you're like a runner right so that's like extra scary yeah (laughs) um i mean i most because i don't drive i mostly just run around my local area but when i can i do like to get out and like go hiking and like run in the woods and stuff i think that's great and neat um but yeah sometimes you're outside like literally like two weekends ago maybe three weekends now i was out for a run i was like "Ooh, i want to take this like pathway that goes next to this nature area because I have never been on it and that would be great. And I got about halfway down like this hill and I'm running along and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the kind of place where I'm either going to find a dead body or be a dead body. I'm like, shoot. I actually like, I picked up like a stick and I'm like running with a stick in my hand. Like that's going to do anything. But I'm like, I will stab anybody that comes near me with this stick. I don't know. Yeah, I mean... Is like totally creepy sometimes, but yeah. So the Creek Girl is, um, it's it's actually like the book that has had like the shortest writing time that needed like the least amount of like, oh, I don't know what I'm gonna do. But it did like change shape several times. Like originally, I had like this whole like Frankenstein in the woods kind of thing, and it totally didn't go there. Um, but it's basically it's about a lady who uh, she's a writer. And she, um, her brother disappeared when he was like visiting the nearby national forest. And um, she's like, she was very traumatized by the experience. And she finds the postcard, like years later, like five years later, she finds the postcard that he sent her from the town where he was like staying at. 
And there's something about it that's like really creepy to her. Mm. And she's made a friend with a guy who has a podcast that's about like true crime. And he's all about like his focus is um, like bringing attention to like crimes against BIPOC people. Um, and because the, they're like way higher, right? Like mm-hmm. there are so many more cases that get overlooked or like swept under the rug and it's a real injustice. Um, and he, she convinces her friend to go with her to this town of Faraday to like, A, try to figure out what happened to her brother, B, look into all of these other like mysterious disappearances that like he's uncovered with all these like um, mostly Latina girls. Um, and they, they, she's like, hey, we'll get our first, we'll, we'll write a, a true crime book and it's going to be awesome. And also we can hang out with our outdoorsy friends and just like slack off and enjoy being in nature and the river and all that stuff. Um, it does not go as planned. Dun, um, dun, dun. And there's a, the book is like packed full of like gross and horrible things like serial killers and poachers and creepy funguses and um, chapters told from the point of view of like coyotes that are like infected with mind controlling creatures. And yeah, so it's, it's described as like Twin Peaks meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It sounds amazing. And there's, there's so much hiking in it. There's just so much hiking and being in the woods. <laughs> it, it, a horror of its own kind in some ways. <laughs> For some people, that is. You know, I like love the woods, horror. but the woods does not give a fuck about you. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's like being truth, on the ocean. Right? Like, you can't be on a boat in the ocean and be like, the world cares for me. You know, you're like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to vomit. Also, a big enough wave comes. We're all dead. What decision have we made? And in the forest, it's like that, but with trees, you know? They're like, that tree is going to fall on right. you, and then you're dead. And no one's going to care. No one's going to know you're here. And then you'll be bones in the forest. <laughs> That's how you know that, like, Lovecraft and his pals, like, never went hiking or boating, <laughs> not even once in their lives. Because, like, you you don't have to walk very far like, we must to spelunk be like, in the Antarctic. And you're like, no, walk 10 <laughs> meters that way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because you don't have to spend much time amongst the trees to realize, like, you're not very important. And, and... That's how it's That's supposed so to be. That's so real. Like, you know those <laughs> mm-hmm. moments, like, I, I I grew up in the country as a kid, and it was like, I would stumble upon, like, a bear. And it's like, oh, my. I'm just glad I didn't upset this bear. I'm going to slowly back <laughs> out of here and then run home and cry. You know what I mean? Like, I was this close yeah. to death. It's like, you saw a bear in nature. You're like, it's fine. <laughs> you know? But that's how it feels. So it feels. Right, yeah. I'm obsessed with that show alone, you know, where people, like... They go out in and, and nature and they have to be like the last one to give up, basically. And All right. one of the things I just, re- I, I wrote like a whole bunch of articles about it. But one of the things I just love about the show is that like the littlest thing will just kill you, like mess you up, right? Like you forget like one thing. I think one guy like dropped his fire stick in the fire by accident and he was just done. He was like tapped out immediately because, you know, like a tiny, tiny, tiny little mistake becomes so con- consequential like in these environments and like, you know, so many people die like every year, like in national parks, they like wander off, they don't pay attention. I was reading an article um, recently about people that like let their dogs off leash when you're not supposed to and like, yellow, I think Yellowstone and then the dogs like oh, jump God. into like the the, the really hot springs because they oh, think it's, geez. and of course they don't survive that. It's just like, 
you know, we have this nice little bubble that we've cultivated that feels so safe, but it's like, you're so close at all times. Like you're probably 30 miles away at most to like just driving out to a place where you could just like wander in and just disappear. Oh, <laughs> creepy and magical. I think we're all going to like the Creek Girl. Um, on that note, <laughs> we're like, here's the darkest thought I've ever had about the woods. <laughs> Listeners are like, that's, that's intense. Um, this has been absolutely incredible. I feel like I could talk to you for the rest of my life. Uh, Wendy, you are so interesting and insightful. The work you're doing at Nightmare Magazine is imperative for the field. It's what horror needs. So, so delighted to have you on that front. But then like, I'm sorry, but F you, the secret skin is like the greatest fucking shit ever. Like, I'm so mad. I was so excited Yay! for you to read it. Oh, man. <laughs> you know what? It was like, so good. You're oh. like, I should throw this across the room now. Um, it was like that, but it was my <laughs> tablet. And I was like, I can't afford another one, so I'm not going to throw it. Uh, you know, but like, I, I think I, I may have said, I'm not sure if I said it before the podcast or once we started, but I was so hungry for more. I immediately started the Dear Kings. I mean, 20 seconds. Aww. I like, I was like, okay, I can wow. buy it here. Boom, boom, boom. Let's go. <laughs> They're both just such interesting stories. You, you take us in such cool directions. And again, I think for me, the queerness in each and, and again, that, that, like a, let's call it a sliver of transness in the secret skin. Those feel so imperative to the story and they they just drove it home to me, I guess. It felt so fun to read. Um, and yeah, I, I just thank you. Thank you for taking the time. I know that you're busy and, uh, you know, now you got to start working on the Creek Girl promotion, which is exciting. Um, but yeah, you're, you're, you're staying busy, Wendy, I've noticed. I try. I try my best. <laughs> <laughs> now, if folks want to find you online or on social media, or if you want to share anything about Nightmare Mag, where give us our links and, and we'll make sure folks get them. Okay. Well, my website has a really dumb name. It's uh, winniewoohoo.com. <laughs> I love this. Every time I look you up, I'm always like wendywagner.com. No, that's not right. And then I like Google it. I'm like, oh, that's right. That's it's many <laughs> Um, yeah. And I'm on Twitter at I think WN Wagner. Um, I think I'm Wendy N. Wagner at Instagram as well, I think. Um and and of course the magazine is nightmare-magazine.com. Amazing. And if you were listening, you know, start polishing up your cosmic horror, your weird fiction, and your gothic, of course. Uh, yeah, so fantastic. If you didn't get, you have your pen out for that, folks, don't worry. In the show notes, I will link to winniewoohoo.com, uh, <laughs> which is just so cute, and Wendy's social media, as well as the, the magazine's URL as well. If you're listening to the episode right now, which if you aren't, I don't know how you're hearing this, you can push the three <laughs> dots next to the name of the episode. That'll open up our show notes for you and there'll be links to everything we just discussed. Wendy, it has been a, a ding ding delight. You are so interesting and this has been so cool. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Maria, thank you for being a super special, awesome, amazing, incredible guest host. You are, as always, Aww. a ding-ding delight. I can't believe you didn't go with ding-dong delight. I love Come it. On. You know, I think I stole it from Nicole Byer. So, like, let's be real. I don't know if I'm oh, like... Okay. I just like everything Nicole Byer says. I'm like, I'm going to start saying that, um, which, you know, is a choice. But uh, you're great, Maria. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. You're 
a joy. Thank you for introducing me to Wendy's work. I am, I'm a better person now. Uh, Kate, thank you for making us sound incredible and maybe cutting my tangent about person of interest. Maybe not. We'll see. Can't wait to hear. Uh, <laughs> listeners, thank you for being here with us. Of course, this is my joke I make every time. So maybe you stop listening before I make it, but I'm going to make it anyways. We could be here without you, but it'd be awkward. So thank you for being here. So <laughs> what we're doing makes sense. And patrons, you know, we love you. We could not be here without you. We would be crying in a gutter. So thank you, patrons. And uh, yeah, everyone, you're the best. Have a great day. You're listening to Bitches on Comics, distributed by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Find more shows like Bitches on Comics by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at at Bitches on Comics and on Instagram at at Bitches on Comics. Our website is brace yourself bitchesoncomics.com if you go there you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs i don't remember what it is i am in charge of updating the website however so good luck thanks for the heads up i'll go to this website now if you'd like to support the podcast you can do so by rating and reviewing us on itunes spotify or stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts you can also support the podcast by joining us on patreon Head to patreon.com slash queerspec to learn more. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. I'm Monica Negra, and you can find me at www.audreysrevenge.com or on Twitter at Audrey Revenge. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hi, my name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I am Kristen Russo. And together, we run Buffering, a rewatch adventure, a family of podcasts moving through our favorite 90s genre television. If you're a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, well, great news for you. Our very first podcast adventure took us through all seven seasons of the series. We covered it spoiler-free, episode by episode. For those of you who want to start the show for the first time, you can find that podcast pretty easily. It's called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Inside that podcast, you'll also find an original song that pairs with each glorious episode of Buffy, and original character jingles for so many of our Buffy favorites. 
buffering has been praised in places like Time, Esquire, Paste Magazine, and the New York Times, and we've chatted with dozens of cast members, writers, directors, and fans along the way. Come hang out and rewatch some of your favorite television with us and a wonderful community of listeners. Learn more at BufferingCast.com or find us on socials at BufferingCast.